Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. Okay, should I start then? Yep. Happy Saturday morning, Internet, and welcome to the Polycast, episode 405. I am one of your regular hosts, Mega Bears fan, joined as always by Canis Albinus. It's not morning for me, but then again, it is also, like, not Saturday. Well, I'm on the West Coast, so it's like 9 a.m., uh, along with Makalua. The uh, big, big brain. Bleh. Hi, I'm louder now, because it's practically in my face. And the me and team. There are no mornings, only mistakes. As a programmer, one of the things that I really hate is time zones. Time zones are such a pain in the butt to deal with as a programmer. Yeah. I hate them. I just want all of us to just be on the same time zone. I don't care if the sun rises at 2 a.m. where I particularly live. I just am sick of having to program for time zones. There is a significant problem with that mindset that I discovered when I did it as a thought experiment. Uh, if, if you have everybody set on the same time zone, it doesn't matter what time zone it is. Let's say it's Greenwich mean time. So UTC, uh, if you're going to talk to somebody in say America, it'll be the same, it'll be the same clock time, but the actual time of the day will be undistinguishable using the clock time, which means that you won't know if you're calling in the middle of the day or not, or if the middle of the night. To be fair, that's broadly the case now. Like, you have to think about it to realize how many hours ahead or behind they are anyway. At least I do. Like, I don't have it memorized. Like, if somebody happens to be in, like, Poland or something, exactly what time of day it is there relative to now. Now I can look it up, or, like, I have a vague idea. Yeah, they're quite a few hours ahead of me, but uh, that's it, it. Like, it's not memorized. And I think you would still have a vague idea if you are calling across multiple time zones that... Uh, they are in a different time zone than you. And, you know, or is it to the right or left on the map is uh, probably something we could still use for a guess. Yeah, yeah, either way, you'd have to, like, look it up. It's much easier to look up what t- what time zone somebody is in than it is to look up what time it is for somebody in the current time zone. Because you time just go by the plus or minus from your time zone or something, and that would give you a lot. That's That would be easy, yes. But you can also do that with the way it works now, so... Yeah, there's no, like, perfect ideal way to do it, but whatever. The solution just... is just to hold the globe in your mind as the sun is going around it and just perfectly visualize where it would be, and then you'll be good. The problem is... Oh. Easy. Easy. The problem is it doesn't always work because some places are on a half-time zones. Well, that wouldn't be true anymore if we unified it that way, because everyone would have one clock, so there's no more of this half-time zone nonsense or, like... This one city doesn't observe it. No, 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 no. <laughs> if we're going to one time zone, that would have to mean one time zone. <laughs> or I, one time. <laughs> I will say, though, that the fact that the United States is supposed to be getting rid of the daylight saving time offset, like starting, I think, next year, that will for sure help because then we won't have to continue to program for the additional oh, yeah. concern of, oh, crap, are we on standard time or daylight time? Uh, you know, personally, I would prefer if, if they would have kept standard time, you know, on the grounds that it's the standard time and uh, it's not drop the daylight saving time offset. But, you know, whatever. So they're actually getting rid of the idea of changing clocks every year, every six months. That would be great. Can we start now? No, 
I don't like that at all. It should stay the same. And I come from a state that only recently started observing it. Why? Is it beneficial? Well, let me put it to you this way. Where I live, in the winter, it gets very dark very early. We have the sunset at like 4.30 p.m. sometimes. And uh, when you're doing the time change, at least for part of the year, it's not so dark so early. Well, but if we stayed on... uh standard time wouldn't it be an hour later in the winter so the sun would be setting at 5 30 and not 4 30 if we're on standard time which is what happens when we fall back every year the sun sets at 4 30 so to stay on standard time all the time no we would want to stay on daylight time all the time well that's what's happening as i understand either or i live in las vegas so i would prefer less sunlight but (laughs) i heard it flooded out there uh, yes, that's right. We got our monsoon season, which dumped like a quarter of an inch of rain, and that flooded the entire city, as as happens. Uh, no, we've had a, a like a weeks of of off and on monsoon. It's been it's been nice. I've been enjoying it. But yeah, I'm not down in the deepest part of the valley where things actually do flood every time it rains. So I'd say send some of it this way, but I know the Colorado River really needs it, so you can keep it. Yeah, there's some serious talk, I think, happening now about, like, building a pipeline from the Mississippi to just dump all the excessive floodwaters into the Colorado or into Lake Mead and Lake uh, Powell. So, who knows? Maybe that'll happen. I don't think the Mississippi has excessive floodwaters. I think the Missouri does. That might be it, yeah. One of those those east of the Rockies rivers that keeps flooding every summer now and destroying lots of homes and businesses. So the solution is we're going to literally move the rain to another place that really needs it because they're going to really, really need it soon enough. The Missouri River doesn't usually flood because of rain. It floods because the the snow in the Rockies melts off, which is why when the Mississippi or the Missouri River has its floods, like you'll see flood warnings that last for months, which is not common where I live. So, but we should probably get back to Civ. We get floods in Civ. Just build a great bath. Yeah, I didn't see a disaster topic here, but apparently... for those of you who are not in the kickstarter no christopher tin has announced a new album it's called The Lost Birds, and it's about extinction, which is a really exciting topic. I'm sure everyone loves that. But the, he's released the first song. Of course, it's a Christopher Tin song, so it's very beautiful. Um, but he's still up to doing good music stuff, and we should celebrate that. Agreed. I hope Firaxis keeps uh, contracting him to do uh, tracks for their games. Or at least one track for each game. That's really all it needs. Yeah, uh, well, uh, yeah, definitely, because uh, also, as we discovered with uh, Civ Six in particular, uh, Fraxis's in-house uh, composers and musicians are also quite good, because Civ Six's original soundtrack is quite phenomenal. I don't think there's a single piece of Civ Six music I don't like, except for the auto-tune Shaka. That one I really don't like, but... <laughs> and that at least probably doesn't show up until the modern era anyway. It's, yeah, so... it's the Atomic Era Zulu theme, which is a real shame, because... The regular Zulu theme is so nice in all the other eras. And even in Civ Five, the, shoot, the Zulu theme was great. But then they <laughs> auto-tuned it and ruined it. That's part of Civ Five, so it's what he declared on you. 
Yeah, I or you declared on him either way. You go the war music for for Zulu and Civ Five. I had a lot of gripes with Civ Five, obviously, but uh, the music was not one of them. Civ Five had a lot of good tracks. Civ Four also is... had good tracks, except for the people are the heroes now. Yeah, is this uh, Christopher Tin's? I think fourth album, or is it his third album? I believe it's his fifth album because I think he did one uh, before he did Calling All Dawns. Oh, okay. And I think it was nowhere near as um, effective or popular as any of his later ones have been. Calling All Dawns is quite good. I, I do own it, and I very much enjoy it. I think it was called um, God of Love or Stereo Alchemy or something. Okay, that sounds vaguely familiar. One of those two. Actually, since we're on the radio slash internet. Oh, I'm going to make some people mad. Stereo Alchemy, God of Love. Uh, it looks like this is by somebody else. No. It says Christopher Tin, God of Love, based on on uh, writings such as Christina Rossetti, John Don, and Lord Byron. Hip, uh, trip hop, synth pop, and a touch of industrial as the style of music. I don't know why they called it God of Love because it's unabashedly erotic. According to the Googles, uh, Christopher Tin has apparently also done tracks for Old World and also for Off World Trading Company. Hmm. I did. So if you. If you play those games, uh, you might have also heard some of his music. He also did the famous Baba Yetu. Right, which I'm sure everybody listening is is very familiar with. Yeah, I was going to say, despite the fact he's kept contributing, I don't think we've gotten something quite as iconic as Baba Yetu. Sogno de Valer is pretty good, but it's not quite as good. Yeah. Definitely head and shoulders above the uh, main menu tracks for Civ Five. that's for sure. Oh, no. Terra Nova was great. Not that the Civ Five ones were bad. I just think Civ Six's title track is is much better. Terranova's the only one I really remember, though. Like that one was good, but the other what you two take away with listeners is we really like all of his stuff. You know, we just have certain favorites. We like all of the Civ music too. Well, with some exceptions. I don't like that it that it's not allowed on YouTube in in season five though, or in, in um, number five though. Going to play. That's not. Hmm? Yeah. Oh well, that's usually the decisions of the. Of their uh, publishing companies and not the artists themselves. It was the Prague Philharmonic uh, Philharmonic uh, Orchestra that made the music uh. that did the music for Civ Five. So they had the copyright apparently because ooh we're hoity-toity Europeans or something. Actually, it was probably more to do with the fact that they are an orchestra rather than the fact that they're European. But anyway, yes, uh, I have heard the first one. We will link it in the show notes is very beautiful, and it might actually be the first song I've heard from him that's actually in English, or at least partially and, uh, in English. And for our listeners now who you know don't get to see the link, it is on his uh, official YouTube channel, which is just called Christopher Tin, so you can check it out there. There's a preview of the uh, opening track from the new album. It also has a really nice visualization. Yes, it does. Not nearly 100,000 birds, though. No, it's usually only one bird. Yeah, sometimes two. Tweet, tweet. And no pelicans. Pelicans. Pelicans and seagulls are the nicest birds. Mine, 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 mine. Oh, no. I had a pigeon <laughs> steal my hamburger at university once. Oof. Wouldn't expect that out of a pigeon. Yeah, it was a mean pigeon. Unless or you, maybe, like, set it down. Maybe it was a crow. No, like, literally, right out of my hand. I was putting it up to my mouth, take a bite out of it, and I, I think it was a crow, not a pigeon. Just did a friggin' strafing run and knocked it right out of my hand. Man, oh. they're not usually that brave. What a jerk. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because that could get them swatted, and some people would swat them. If I noticed, I would swat them, having my food. Hey, at least the crow's not trying to crack a nut on your roof. True. 
usually usually if you hear something knocking on your roof it's probably a good idea to get out depends on the knock i would guess probably also depends where you are yeah because where i lived a few houses ago there was a tree outside that would tend to drop crap onto the roof and you would hear that bouncing and uh that was not alarming after a while because it happened a lot and it was not a very heavy sound we are getting onto lots of tangents today <laughs> It's yeah, been a while yeah, since there's totally been a, something to do with Civ. It's it's uh, been a while since we've had a new Civ game. It might be showing. <laughs> Welcome to the Tangent Podcast. There also hasn't been a lot of updates with Six in quite some time now. Oh, unless you count the launcher. <laughs> no. <laughs> So would you say this game is broken? <laughs> is he, like, not here? Did he step away? Oh, yeah, if Jason's not here, then... Oh, his PC just rebooted on him. Okay. Uh, so oh, technical difficulties. Oh, my. So we're waiting on something that's not coming. This is great. Uh, <laughs> totally, so really, we were just filling dead air this whole time, just like planned. Totally, uh, totally professional. All right, let's talk about the uh, the next topic, then, and... Uh, we'll, oh, we'll come back to that. Come back to that. All right, then, an impromptu progression to the core of Forex Games. Boring endgame problem. This is by uh, Cranchin, who also has posted quite a bit on EU4 forums in the past, so recognize the name. Perhaps you recognize his mind as well. We've had our discussions here and there. Um, so I- I've read through this, and I, don't, I can't say I completely agree with the reasoning for why the endgame is boring, so to speak. And I know they get he gets to it in another post further down with the, you know you've already won the game thing, but I, I think that's central, that you know the outcomes of the game. That makes the choices stop being meaningful. I don't think that the growth in mechanic, mechanical complexity is the thing that's off-putting the most people. Like, if that were the case, people would be able to identify it. But rather, like, it just takes so long to get through the turns and there's like nothing to play for any longer like there there's no meaning in the choices and by that i mean like it will what you decide here have an impact on the outcome of the game and very frequently in the mid to light game especially late game as you're either too large or you're well on your way to victory the answer is no like you can pick pretty much anything that turn and end turn and you're gonna win or lose uh usually win if you're the player when i was reading this thread i was kind of coming to the conclusion that this guy is clearly an EU4 player and doesn't understand what Civ is. Well, no, he's played Civ quite a bit, too. I agree. And but... like EU4 shares a similar issue that people complain about all the time, which is that once you are at a certain point in size, you are mostly just pushing against the mechanics that slow down your expansion. You're no longer under any existential threat. You no longer have to really manage Diplo very much. A lot of the game's mechanics go away. Um because there's no longer any meaning to engaging with them significantly. But what he's saying is that the problem is that the interface doesn't grow with you as you improve in the game, which means that you have to keep doing more complex things with low complexity tools. Well, that's, I mean, that's fair. The UI sucks. So uh, improving that would have helped the late game. Yes, yeah, certainly. It wouldn't solve it, but it would help it a lot to just have a nicer interface to work with. And similarly, since the 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 interactions are all still 
low value in terms of the full whole, the further you get into the game, the less each individual matters. Um, I think that'll happen no matter what in 4X, though. Yeah, because otherwise you have a game that's rubber banding, and that's yeah. also not fun for people who are in the bottom. Well, it, it similar to the issue with uh, Runaways, it strips agency. It just strips agency from a different class of player because it makes choices less meaningful. It's just which choices become less meaningful. With rubber banding, it's early choices. The amount of um, time wasted while waiting for things to build is also a problem. Well, that's a function of how long the turns take, too, though. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what's making the AI take so much time, IBT, but that's been a major issue in Civ for both 5 and 6. It's just how long the AI takes to roll its turns. Like, it's clearly not doing some sort of, like, Google DeepMind high-quality turns in the background there. I, I can't imagine it needs to be like this. It's just running through whatever set of checks they've given it to do and <clears throat> reevaluates every single turn because it can't really store a longer-term plan. Well, sure, but like in Civ 4, that didn't take that long relative to the hardware, whereas in Civ 5 and 6, suddenly it does. I mean, my best guess would maybe be the pathing, but I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm pretty confident that the one unit per tile has a lot to do with that problem in uh, Civ 5 and Civ 6. Yeah, probably. I don't know, though. I think... I don't know. It, it is definitely harder to to do trajectories over a hex system than a grid system, if only because humans are better at writing algorithms for doing it. But Civ five and Civ six also have extra players because you not only have the like eight or ten civs, but you've also have usually at least as many city states that are also taking turns. I know that the city states, like if you watch when you play multiplayer in Civ five, it like shows who's taking their turn. And it is very obvious that the main culprit for the long-term IBT times is the city-states and the barbarians. Or, if that's not what's actually happening, it might be the um, time it takes from the turn end to end to for the next turn to begin, in the sense that, okay, processing for the barbarian turn is done, now we're going to move on to the player's next turn, and maybe it takes a little bit of extra or a lot of bit of extra processing time to actually increase the turn counter and all the things that are associated with that. Yeah, Man, you gotta read all the yields and, you know, build all the stuff that's getting built and, you know, all that stuff. There's a, quite a bit of overhead for that, and that increases, you know, as you have more cities. I, I, can't, I can't believe that's a significant source relative to the amount of time it takes between turns. Well, I remember... That's probably only, like, a couple seconds tops, like, one to five. I Probably remember not even five. when I'm remembering watching these in between turns when you're in multiplayer and you can see which turn which player is taking their turn at what time it as far as when I remember seeing it in Civ 5 it, you could always see which AI was moving at what time and that was always like on the um, the enter the renaissance map in gods and kings which was way too many civs on the same map you could see each civ take their turn. But when you are playing a more standard game, the amount of time between uh, the barbarians starting and ending their ending their visible visible turn, which ends when your turn starts, seemed greater than it should have been. Well, it might be that case. I'm just, I'm not sure why it should be that case. And well, I it think wasn't previously when it cycles to the barbarians and then it's done with the barbarians. I don't think it cycles to another icon for in between turn. So I think it's counting in between turn as part of the barbarian movement. 
Yeah, I get what you're saying there. Uh, I'm just thinking back to earlier iterations in the series, which also had to update yields. Uh, had to update trade routes in a way that's more complex uh, on the IVT than caravans, and had many times the number of cities. Like Civ uh, five and six don't even tolerate the huge maps decently, but you could play like a huge Civ four map and have like you know upwards of two hundred cities or something, or you know maybe that's an exaggeration. Maybe it's quote unquote only like one hundred to one hundred fifty cities that's on the map a lot. growing. Like that's way more than a typical game of Civ five or six have. Like significantly more like several times more the number of cities uh so for if it's grinding down on like updating yields or tiles or whatever uh, i would be very interested to know why that is the case in the newer titles when it seems to have been much better optimized previously but i also am doubtful that that's really the biggest source of slowdown but like back to the topic all of these things contribute because if you say the end game is boring well making the choices less impactful uh while making them more numerous will certainly make the game less interesting. Increasing the amount of time the player has before, between when they're able to make these choices will also make the pace of the game slow down. And then like knowing that these things aren't going to contribute to victory uh, significantly because you're going to win either way is also going to make it less meaningful, so to speak. So there's a lot of things that go into making the end game more boring. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's tractable other than just not having the end game drag out so long. And I know I've said that previously, but I've like I've yet to see a better solution than that. And I have seen that solution implemented in games before, and it's just better. <laughs> you can just win the game when you've won, rather than waiting to end the game. That being said, I do like uh, growing complexity, and I, I like complexity in games in general. So that's maybe a preference thing. But I would agree with him that the UI needs to be able to match uh, what the game is asking you to do, so it's not a fight to play the game. Yeah, hypothetically, you you could have a game where like the controls and the UI and maybe even some of the mechanics scale along with the growing complexity, which I think is something that he's trying to suggest to where, you know, you go from managing individual units early in the game to, say, for example, managing whole armies later in the game, which is kind of what Civ Six tried to do with things like the, um, uh, you know, being able to form the cores and armies and, and fleets and armadas. Uh, but, but it's like, still an individual unit to move in a sense. Right. Yeah. But like, I, I mean, hypothetically you could have something that starts off with you controlling individual units in the way that, that Civ six does, but then maybe later in the game, like you have a system more akin to like, uh, and Phil, please don't jump down my throat on this, like hearts of iron where you're, <laughs> I was going to make you, a joke about it actually, where you have like a front line, and your army is kind of running itself and you just have to tell, like, the, do the logistics of it. Like, okay, well, these units deploy to this place and, and you know, kind of like real-time strategy games have with, like, uh, uh, not waypoints, uh, rally points and stuff like that, where you set those things up and then the unit automatically goes there and if there's combat happening there, it automatically engages in that combat. You don't have to, you know, micro every one of your units as soon as it comes out of a barracks in like StarCraft or whatever to go to this particular place on the board and, you know, fight the Zerg. You just, it just does it if you set the rallies uh, appropriately. Yeah. Holy hell are you penalized if you don't micro it. Yeah. In but every game I've played that has these things. No, no. Oh my gosh, Hearts of Iron. <laughs> I don't want to jump down your throat, but I do want to jump down the Hearts of Iron devs' throats. But rather than that, I'll just point right, out that this is very hard to do. 
Like this is not easy to do. The battle planner does not work. Period. Um, right, which is why I said hypothetically, you you could have a game that does that. And I would argue that the Civ Five UI is also bad. So like, if we can get to the point where we have a good UI from the start, and then can evolve the UI and have that UI also be good, man, I'm all for it. But we're talking pipe dreams here. <laughs> Unless something like fundamentally changes about how strategy game devs approach their game design and their UI, uh, I, it's hard to picture seeing a good implementation from that in any of the modern strategy games I've played. It sounds cool, though. Like, I'm all for it if it would work. I just don't think it would work because the devs who've tried these things individually in games designed to use them, already these mechanics don't work properly. But maybe there's someone out there who could do it. And on the other end of the spectrum, you know, we have had games in the past that focus, you know, more on the uh, the macro elements and not the the micro tactics and stuff like that. You know, like we talked about Hearts of Iron there for a moment, but also Master of Orion 3 comes to mind where one of the criticisms of that game was that all of the mechanics and, and controls and UI were at such a large scale that it also had the same problem of making individual decisions feel kind of moot and meaningless. And the player had almost nothing to do because so much of the game was automated even early on when you would expect the player to have to be more personally involved with what's happening. Yeah. Although the first master of Orion is a pretty good example of being able to end games. If you want to the council victory. Yeah, we don't have anything like that. Like we had the Apostolic Palace previously or World Congress. Well, there's a World Congress, but there was a different kind before where you could do it by diplomatic vote you could, or other types of ways. And even Alpha Centauri had that, but we don't have that now. So you can't end an earth. When, when you have a certain level of domination over the map, the game is over. But it, I think you'd not- want to use something different in Civ uh, than yeah. what Master of Orion did. But it's an example of the developers taking time to consider Okay, somebody doesn't want to just go uh, annihilating everything. Like, how do we end a game that's already done? Yeah, another example would be the um, uh, Shogun Total War or Total War Shogun Two. The uh, one of the expansions, uh, I want to say, it was called Fall of the Samurai, uh, or maybe it was Rise of the Samurai. I don't know something. It it had an end game where once a uh, the player controls like half of Japan all of the remaining factions would coalesce into like one opposing faction to fight back uh, in order to actually make it so that instead of, you know, trivially having to deal with 10 or so tiny factions, it's one powerful faction that actually does warrant, you know, player consideration and is challenging to defeat and actually can sway, you know, the game back the other direction. So, you know, I could see maybe there being you know, civilization doing more with late game coalition building like Civ five kind of tried to do that with the, um, uh, ideology system. And I think this, this poster actually brought that up in the topic where, you know, you, you can hypothetically have a coalition of opposing civs joined together to actually be a threat to the player. But the issue with the ideology system in, in Civ five was that, um, you also had the snowballing players were also in coalitions with their ideological, allies so it ended up kind of uh you know evening out and and being moot in that regard now i've been played shogun if you beat that coalition was the game over then were you considered just the winner once you were able to beat them yeah i forget what the exact conditions were it was either you had to control half of the map of japan or you had to have like captured the capital and like installed yourself as shogun 
and then at mm. that point all of the remaining um daimyos like basically form an alliance with one another to try to get you off the throne and if you hold the capital for like a certain period of time or you completely conquer the rest of them then i think you win but i don't quote me on all that because i haven't played that game for like gosh probably 10 15 years now so mm. i don't remember for sure uh although if you're interested um shogun 2 is a very good game like it is my personal favorite in the total war franchise so if you want to go back and check it out uh and both of the expansions for it are also quite good so you know by all means feel free to go and, and check it out and play for yourself and see what you think of it yeah i was just curious mechanically like how they were ending the game there uh sooner because like the you get coalitions in eu4 as well but what ultimately happens there is they slow the game down rather than speeding up because even though you have a massive number of enemies to beat you're still capped at 100% war score so you you basically fight like 10 times the enemies and then you take one times the 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 benefit of a war uh, if you actually fight into coalitions so like you're extremely incentivized to do everything in the possible to avoid in engaging with the coalition mechanic uh, aside from maybe resetting it now and then by like just attacking the coalition and getting truces to break it up and that's that's the extent to which it's optimal like I, I would like to see if you have massive coalitions opposing you and you you can still beat that like if you're still that kind of runaway that uh, you just win like over that area <laughs> I mean in EU4 you'd have to get around the other mechanics like overextension and whatnot but like assuming you could like you would then just be able to take you know, proportionately more war score relative to the size of the coalition going up against you. That way the game's not so friggin' slow. Or, like, you have to, like, work around it in sometimes questionable ways yeah, so you don't have to engage with the mechanic that was intended to stop you from running away. Because that's all how all the great players do it. They just don't engage with the coalitions. They manipulate the game such that they don't have to deal with them. Uh, yeah, but it doesn't make it less of a grind. It, if you watch how long those runs take, it is they're not quick. Now, there's a lot of time spent trying to balance, okay, exactly how much can I take in this particular war to not get coalition? And now that they I've done on this side of the everything. map. It's yeah. truce locking. If there's like a little bit of alliances to shield um, uh, aggressive expansion a little bit. And then mostly they just take things like way too rapidly for the AI to react. And then once they start reacting, just declare more. And by then you're too strong, so the coalition won't form because you have too many units. And then also looking at um, other examples from within the Civilization franchise itself, we have, uh, I would say, a bad example in um, Civilization colonization, or at least the Civ Four version of it, where you get to the end game and then suddenly you have to fight your revolutionary war against the European motherland, and it's just a different game now than the game you've been playing uh, for the uh, previous you know, 10 or 20 hours or however the heck long it takes to play the game. Yeah, you were exploring the map and building up colonies, and now suddenly it, it, it's uh, hearts of iron. Yeah, you, you trip over an arbitrary threshold of liberty bells or whatever, uh, and then suddenly you have to fight off this you know massive invading army, even if none of the game up to then had involved building units or fighting wars at all. So, yeah, that, that's a bad example of trying to uh, shake up late game uh gameplay and, and and you know i mean it was different but at the same time this is not the game you came in expecting to play 
Right, exactly. And there's no there's no negotiating with, you know, the European no. homeland. It's it's you have to fight the American Revolution. It doesn't matter if you're playing as the Spanish colonies or the Dutch colonies or the French colonies, uh, you know, not all of which had to fight a war to gain their independence. I mean, sure, some of them had to yeah. wait until like the 1980s uh, <laughs> to have it happen peacefully, which is well out of the scope of the game. But like, still, it's like, yeah, you're you're playing this little, you know, logistics and trade good manufacturing game. And then all of a sudden it becomes this like massive war game. And, you know, it's not particularly good at being that. So, yeah, don't do stuff like that either. If you're if you're going to try to shake up the gameplay with some kind of like coalition or late game threat, at, you know, definitely try to make it some kind of emergent thing that comes out of the rest of the game, not just something that feels like it comes out of left field. Yeah, because that, that was the thing with colonization. You could have gotten along with your motherland this entire time, but you tripped that threshold. Suddenly, revolution! But we were getting along. It doesn't make sense that you couldn't negotiate a, uh, well, the, the diplomatic version of a revolution. We'd like to be independent. Can we work towards that? Nope, yeah. nope, nope. You got to fight. Exactly. We'd love to keep selling this silver and tobacco to you, but you know, whatever. <laughs> no, you know what? No, yeah, it's not that kind of a swap. The other way they could have handled that is to just put some fighting against other people into the game earlier and made yeah. it more obvious that that's what you are going to be encountering at the end of the game. Yeah, like maybe they in. could have had some system where, like, in the mid-game, uh, you know, maybe some of the native tribes all band together and become a military threat, so you actually do have to build a military to, to fight off them. Well, you can and fight off. Or other colonies. You can fight be. off the other colonies, too. Yeah, there's that, too. Yeah, yeah, the issue with the, at least with the Civ Four version of colonization was there were only four colonies in the game, and uh, if, depending on the size of the map, like, the other three colonies were completely moot on, on certain sized maps because you just never interacted with them at all because they were so far away. Yeah, well, I mean, they could have designed it so that there was gameplay benefit to contesting them or whatever. Yeah, or had more colonies so that the map actually fills up with rivals uh, that are, you know, at the same level as you. Yeah, go beyond the normal historical suspects and, like, throw in some extras. Maybe have Portugal. Yeah. Mm. Or they did. They well, what did they have? They had what? England, France, Spain, and what? And I think the Netherlands. Dutch Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but each of yeah, them so also could throw in Portugal. Each of them also did have multiple leaders, uh, leader avatars. So hypothetically, they also could have just had there be multiple English colonies or whatever with each of the different <laughs> leaders that potentially can fight against each other as well. No, we need to we need to go all out with like nonsense and throw in like Irish colonizers, Scottish colonizers, and then uh, how about what's that uh, that one from the uh, Baltics? What was it? Norway or Riga? Riga, yes. Well, also Norway, of course. Uh, but yeah, I was thinking about Riga. Uh, Norway, <laughs> Norway still exists, so it's a little easier to come to mind. And yeah, they definitely should be in uh, if you're gonna throw an extra. The joke here is that in the new patch of EU4, they're adding a tree for Riga, which is, I believe, the capital of Latvia. Mm. And um, in EU4 is a one-province minor, and they're giving it a tree to become a colonizer. I think there is some historical basis for that area of the world trying to make colonies, actually. Like, there's a... That was a thing. Sort of like the Scottish uh, attempted colonies. Didn't go particularly well for them, but they tried. So you have like some basis to throw these folks in just as a 
Well, so you have more options in the game. The Scottish expedition was mostly a single guy, and he was a con artist. Yeah, <laughs> it was. But it would still be great. It'd be great to have that in the game, especially if the behavior of that colony was a nod to that historical truth. <laughs> there was no colony there, though. <laughs> I, well, there would be in the game, and it would be led by someone who is a little bit less uh, trustworthy than everyone else. Like, I think stuff like that would be great for games. It's sort of a what if anyway. Like the whole point of this is a what if, where you're like messing around with not quite realistic mechanics that are inspired by actual history in some way. So, like, if we're gonna do a what if on this uh, colony game anyway, we, we can bring in stuff like this. You can bring in the con artist, like actually making a colony or having the colony be like in a terrible state because it's underfunded or whatever you want to do with it. But like, actually make it exist and interact with the other colonies. It'd be great. <laughs> Challenge mode is winning with them. Or maybe not, because your motherland would be weaker, too. The Coronian Colonization of the Americas, performed by yeah. the Duchy of Courland, now Latvia, had a yeah, colony... Yeah, that was the one I was thinking of, actually. ...had a colony in Tobago for five years, and then inter- inter- intermittently, intermittently for about 30 years after that. Yeah, see, totally a reason to give them a full focus tree or mission tree or whatever. I mean, Malta also had a colony, apparently, so... Yeah, see? Throw them in colonization as well. Germany and Italy both attempted. Uh, yeah, Germany was, later. was down here in Texas. Wasn't that later? I think that was later. Yeah, that's like 1800s. Yeah. They were like, oh, we're going to sneak in over here where the U.S. isn't looking. We're going to set up like a new little Germany. Uh, it didn't quite work out because colonies are heckin' expensive. Yeah. Now we have places like Fredericksburg with all the German food and everything, which is great. Well, the Germans mostly just immigrated into the U.S. throughout the U.S.'s, uh, US's history because we have uh, German towns all over the place. There's a lot of Germans near where I live, although they don't call themselves that anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, like, I'm talking in terms of, like, your genetic background. Like, people aren't ethnically Germans and, like, speaking German in blocks or anything. Like, I think that would be fine and all, but that's not what happened. But I just mean, like, there's a lot of uh, immigration from Germany. There are a lot of uh, Scandinavians in Minnesota, and there are still people up there who speak in those languages sometimes. So yeah. there were a lot of German language newspapers in the U.S. until World War One, and then they stopped being German. Yeah, and eventually people just integrate into the general country. Well, it was mostly because we were at war with Germany, and... That made a lot of people a little bit anxious to be reading a German language newspaper in the U.S. Yeah, I guess. Although World War One, it was uh, a little bit less obvious to the U.S. Uh, who to side with initially. Also, tangents. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> okay, going back on track, do we have uh, Mega Bears fan? Uh, yeah, what topic are, are we doing next? Because my computer... Well, we skipped down. yours. We skipped yours because you had the are, crash. All right, are we coming back to that now then? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, well, our uh, good old YouTube pal Spiffing Brit uh, put up another YouTube video this past week uh, claiming that Civ Six is once again broken, although he uh, uh, does like to exercise hyperbole. Uh, in this case, he's playing a marathon game with China and showcasing that uh, China's actually really dang good on a marathon game. They're not that great on the shorter length games, but on marathon, their bonuses make a huge difference. 
Um, and I think he ends up winning the game in like 250 or 260 turns or something like that in marathon. Yeah. Yeah. And he Which, gave the comparison for how much shorter that was. It was like one sixteenth the time. Like think about one sixteenth the time. If you were playing like a game at quick speed, it's be 40 like turns. Yeah. It's ridiculous. And it's yeah. also completely by accident. He wasn't even trying for that victory. Although right. that's like, that the game what? scaling in general, uh, like he skews towards marathon. Uh, obsolete back in the day of Civ 4 would always call them speed cheats because of that, which uh, upset some people, which uh, made it fun. Uh, but that aside, just broadly speaking, most wins on Marathon and any Civ that I know of will be biased towards earlier as a ratio of the maximum number of turns uh, than faster speeds. Uh, just no matter what your victory condition, as long as you're like trying to optimize for winning the game on any particular victory condition, you're going to be faster, so to speak, on Marathon uh, relative to the total turn count. Right. And the reason for that, or one of many reasons for that, is because playing on the slower game speeds does not do things like make the distances between locations any further or slow down the movement or combat capability of troops. So yeah. you still fight like wars move units and fight wars at the same speed, not relative speed, but at the exact same speed as uh, in quicker game speeds. So, you know, if, if you want the game to take longer, you would probably play on a larger map with more sieves. Uh, but like the, the distance units travel is exactly the same. So yeah. you can, if especially if you're doing like a conquest victory, like, yeah, it's going to be way quicker, like assuming you don't have to just wait until you unlock ocean travel or whatever in order to, to cross the seas, just simply because your armies perform at the exact same speed as they would. The only real issue is, of course, if you're losing units, it takes a lot longer to rebuild them. But of course, if you're playing against the AI and you're probably killing 10 AI units to every one of yours, assuming you're losing any at all. Uh, that just further advantages you because it's the AI is not going to be able to replace those units in a timely fashion. So, yeah, I mean, uh, effectively compared to a normal speed, if it's uh, three times the number of turns, the military will fight and heal at triple the speed uh, relative to normal games. And that also means that the ground they cover relative to the AI tech base is much faster. So. Yeah, it just winds up being easier to win. Right, you, you actually get your advanced units to the uh, into the front line and fight and conquer things with them before they become technologically obsolete mm -hmm. in, uh, in epic and marathon games. And then what makes China particularly powerful in a marathon game is their ability to use builder charges to hurry. Is it just the production of wonders or is it other stuff too? Just I, I wonders. I it's just wonders. Yeah, just wonders. So each builder charge is 15% of the total production cost of the wonder, uh, which on marathon game speeds is a lot. And that means that you're building any wonder in seven, is it six or seven? Uh, 100 divided by 15? Seven. Uh, in seven turns. And on marathon speed, like actually building a wonder is going to take probably 60 to 100 turns. But with China and builders, you can do it in seven. And building a builder is not going to take 60 turns. It, it, even in a you know not great city, it's probably going to take like 20, 30 turns. But I think Spiffing Brit had his um, capital popping builders out in like six turns. And then on top of that, he had like the pyramids and the social policies and uh, governors that give you extra 
um, charges. So each of his builders had like seven charges, six or seven charges. So one single, seven. yeah. So one single yeah. builder essentially would build any wonder in the game, as long as it was, you know, unlocked technologically, uh, which I think is why he ended up accidentally built, uh, tripping over a, um, a culture victory because all those wonders are generating, you know, culture and tourism and stuff like that. And then he, uh, he was also playing with like all of the optional game modes enabled. So like secret societies was on and uh, yeah. So there's a lot of other um, synergies that he used for that as well to um, increase the, you know, potency of his builders and the speed with which he was building things and researching things. And, uh, and then also I think he, he also just kind of got really lucky in that it seemed like, all of the AIs were so busy fighting off barbarians that they weren't like expanding much or building much of a military. Or if they were, they were losing that military to yeah. barbarians. He could, he should not have been able to run over Grand Columbia as easy as he did. And that was really because of barbarians. Yeah. Like Grand Columbia lost one of its, like it's, it's second city. Like they lost it to loyalty pressure. Like yeah. how the heck did that happen? <laughs> it's okay, so foreign to me. So, yeah, I don't know if I would go so far as to say that China is broken um, completely. But the, but the but, slower speed you pick, the more powerful China becomes. Yeah. Although so would any sure. like game, any Civ choice with an early uh, unique unit would also just be ridiculous on Marathon. Yeah, but China has like the extra whipped cream and the cherry on top on that <laughs> because of the thing with the workers and the wonders. Yeah, I mean, you could say that, but like, I would imagine on most difficulties, an early game focused unique unit would just win the game on the spot. Like, you could literally conquer everyone else before the AI gets countermeasures on most difficulties, which I would, you know, winning the game on the spot's pretty good. So, I don't know. Yeah, again, as long as you don't lose any of your valuable units and then have to spend 20 turns replacing them. Yeah, but if you're doing early conquest, that's, I mean, you're not going to. And the more they win, the more ridiculous they're going to get with promotions. Right, yeah, and uh, that's also another thing. I don't think... Uh, d does the experience required for promotions scale up with game speed? No, I don't think so. so it wouldn't make sense to do so because the, the number of units doesn't increase that much. Yeah, so I, th I think you still get promotions just as fast on Epic and Marathon game speed as you would on Normal or Quick. So that effectively means they're also being promoted like three times as fast relative to the actual length of the game. In practice, not so much, because you're not fighting more units. So you don't actually do more combats. Oh, well, yeah. I, I mean, I guess it depends. If anything, you, you cut through the eye so quickly that it has less chance to build units, you might actually get less total combats. Yeah, I mean, unless you're farming them on barbarians or something like that. I wonder what the barbarian spawn rate is on the, those game speeds. Oh, yeah, I haven't tried to farm barbarians in ages. Isn't that capped still? Like how much XP you can get from that? I don't think in Civ Six it's ever been capped. I think in Civ Five it, it was, or no, is oh, experience Civ, Civ Five? I know capped great general points. I forget. Does Civ Six cap combat experience against I barbarians? I think it does. Yeah, I've just never tried to farm them that long because it was never like worth the the time or effort when I could be using those units to just beat the AI, uh, which gives experience reliably. So I never tried it. It's not like Civ Four where you're like trying to unlock a heroic epic or something, right? Because man, that that made a big difference for early to mid game wars in Civ Four. Like if you were doing any wars before, like rifling, yeah, even with like cursor timings, heroic epic was a big deal because you would pre-build some units and then use what was otherwise an un inefficient means of uh, getting more units, so upgrading, upgrading so much better in the newer Civs. Uh, but that would let you hit the timing sooner. 
and that was often worth the inefficiency otherwise because you just got so much out of it uh, but then just hard producing more curators using your heroic epic city was certainly beneficial so it was worth unlocking if you're like just drafting rifles it's a little bit less useful because uh, you just draft but uh, it still helps it's just not as impactful relative to the rest of your production then yeah i do remember early on in, in civ 6 uh trying to play china um on like normal game speeds and whatever on like higher difficulties than i usually try playing with the hopes that i'd be able to build some of those early wonders uh using that ability and yeah on, on normal game <laughs> speed it, it it's not that much help because when the ais are building those wonders in 15 20 turns like me having to spend you know, seven, eight, nine, ten turns building the builder, and then you know, six, seven turns uh, on the actual wonder. It's still like the AI still have an advantage there on the normal game speeds. But yeah, when you go up to epic and marathon, yeah, you can basically have your pick of any ancient classical wonders that you want. As and I think China's ability only works for ancient and classical wonders as well. So uh, you won't be able to use that on the later wonders, but. If you've got all of the ancient classical wonders, you're probably running away with the game anyway. Yeah, and not only are you generating a lot of stuff, but you're also suppressing the AI's access to stuff that it would normally get because you're getting it all yourself. Well, and especially if you if you know when the AIs are building the wonders, like you can watch their progress and like let them <laughs> waste 50 turns on a wonder while you're building like units and buildings and stuff like that, and then just have your builder spam it out in a handful of turns just before they're finished. And it's like, well, haha. Yeah, just whip Sistine Chapel, right, Mackie? No, she wasn't here for that. Aw, man. Such a great moment in Turncast history. Yeah. Well, that leaves us in a pickle because I think we want to skip the last two topics due to time concerns. So, uh... Yeah, well, one of them was her topic anyway, but yeah, I yeah. guess you also had her on the outro. So, this has been episode 205 of Polycast. You mean 405? What did I say? You said 205. Okay. That was a little while ago. I, I, uh, I think, yeah, it's 405, not 205. I feel better. I'm not doing that good, apparently. I am Canis Albinus. We're joined with uh, Makalua, who appears to have stepped away for a moment. The me and team. Wee! Oh, take the wonders by force. And oh, there's Mackie. Oh, hi. Sorry. We're we're just finishing up because we don't have time for the last two. Oh, okay. Well, so, that's say goodbye. Say goodbye. Bye bye. Okay. And Mega Bears fan. Auf Wiedersehen. Coffee. 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 Mm-hmm. Civilization. Whoops. This is not good. I I I apparently have lost my train of thought. Civilization 4, 5, 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6, Sound Clips, Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net. And the stream is done.